very good morning to all of you and hello welcome and shabak hai all of which you understand so welcome to yet another episode of contrast the consulting podcast of consult as you are aware the podcast is consult- conducted by the consult club the consulting club of nibm the autonomous institute of rbi and for today's episode we have mr arnav mehta with us the associate vice president of ivy Uh, Sir is a qualified CA with almost nine years of experience in investment banking. He started his career in 2012 with Rabobank and has been opportunity to work in INFS Financial Services and Equarius Capital before joining EY. In EY sector specific sector focused teams, Sir is currently part of chemicals and agriculture sector teams. Over the nine years of his experience of working in investment banking, Sir has worked in transaction end to end. Sir has also an experience of working in multiple sectors such as chemical, agri, dairy, consumer, logistics, infrastructure, and many more. As part of his work experience, Sir has also had an opportunity to work with the major companies such as Britannia, Jain Agriculture, Ramki Infrastructure, and so on. Well, I know that I am overwhelmed with his industry experience, and I'm sure you are too. And without further ado, we'll get started. But before that, uh, we'll introduce you with today's topic, that is investment banking in India. the key insight so before we dive in uh, can you give us a brief about yourself sure so uh, firstly i would like to thank manshi for having me on this uh, podcast and i look forward to connecting with all students and share my views on investment banking as a career path so just to add what manshi said so currently i'm part of evis uh, uh, chemicals and agriculture team i'm an associate vice president there we are a team of almost five people uh in various designations we currently cover specialty chemicals and agriculture space so basically we do transactions and we do work only within this sector so in ey we have uh, sector teams for every every sector there are uh, specific sector teams for infrastructure there are uh, real estate media tech uh, pharma whatever sectors you can name we have a specified uh, sector team we are a team of almost 65 people uh, based out of bombay uh, there are investment banking teams in other uh, locations like delhi uh, bangalore also so this is a bit about uh, uh, myself uh, like manshi mentioned i started my journey with uh, rabobank back in 2012 that was my first job uh, so i was an analyst there for almost 3 uh, years so uh, we uh, rabobank was predominantly a food and agri bank so they did work only within the food and agri space so some of the key sectors as a part of my work experience with rabobank that i covered were dairy consumer agri input so you know these are all quite big sectors uh, by it uh, after rabobank in 2015 i joined ilfs financial services so i was part of their infrastructure uh, corporate financial team so we used to basically advise uh, uh, ilfs internally uh, internal group companies as well as external clients uh in their uh, capital raising uh, activities uh so i was there for almost two and a half years uh, after that i had joined equirus capital uh, i was there for a short period of time uh, uh, again i covered infrastructure space there uh from after equirus capital i i i've joined ilf uh, sorry i've joined ey since 2018 so that's uh, that's a bit uh, on my career till now Uh, needless to say, I, I think I've said this uh, a million times now, but we are really excited to have you with us, and especially the field of sure. investment banking. I think it fascinates almost everyone in our college, at least. Please, please to say about that. So let's get so started. So let me give you a heads up. It's not yeah. as glamorous as you used to think that investment banking is. Is just like any other normal job. So you being modest, sir, but uh, 
let yeah, we'll we'll just have your glimpse over it. So uh, sure, my very sure. first question sir, is uh, from starting as an investment banking analyst at Rabobank to becoming an associate vice president at EY. You have observed the investment banking space closely for years. And so from your experience, how has the industry changed over these years? And what are the future prospects, especially with the pandemic changing the global economy forever? Sure. So uh, like I mentioned, you know, uh, back in 2012, when I started my investment banking journey with Rabobank, during that time, you know, teams used to be actually quite small. And, you know, the trend of being sector specific team was not, I was not actually caught up with, you know, small boutique bank. To give you a perspective, so Rabobank was a global bank, but it was boutique, uh, had boutique operations in India. It was not that big in India. So, uh, you know, uh, all the sector specific teams and having specialized teams, give you an exact about consumer, dairy, packaged foods, agri foods. So all these sectors are quite huge by itself. Here in EY, we have dedicated teams for all these sectors, like I mentioned to you. So the uh, the big change that has happened over a period of time is that, you know, as as uh, investment banking uh, progress, uh, the specific teams concept started catching up with boutique banks also. You know, uh, you would have seen a lot of uh, articles about how Indian market has been seen as a growth market by foreign investors, you know. Um, like you, if you hear from any any financial or any any investor, you know they will always say India is the growing market, and that's one of the markets where everyone wants to enter and be a part of it. So just to give you a perspective, you know how how uh, the uh, transactions and you know investments in India uh, specific has changed. As per a Grant Thornton report, you know the total value of capital raised from PE funds by Indian domestic companies was around 7.4 billion in 2012. But that same amount is almost close to 20.5 billion in 2000, uh, 2019 and around uh, 19 billion in 2020. Uh, in 20, the figures were quite uh, low because of whatever pandemic and all. Uh, so you see, you know, how the PE investments has uh, increased in India. You would see how uh, the, the whole uh, act of raising capital from financial investors has increased. Since the uh, you know, availability of capital has increased, you know, you would see a lot of startups also emerging. You know, the startup culture uh, wasn't there when I started my investment banking practice, uh, investment banking career back in uh, 2012. Since the startup practices also, you know, increase, the availability of capital is one of the main drivers for all the startup culture to, uh, you know, flourish in the current times. Uh, like I mentioned, you know, since capital was not a problem, money raised by startups started to increase. This, you know, this gave an opportunity for a lot of investment banks to have, you know, uh, 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 startup specific teams, you know, uh, catering to startups was never a trend initially, but you know, if you'd seen last five years, a lot of boutique banks have started to cater to startups also. So this helped, this has helped, you know, the investment banking space to actually thrive. And, you know, the, one of the key, uh, uh trends or, you know, uh, you would say the changes that have happened in the investment banking space in the last, uh, five to 10 years, uh, moving on, you know, uh, like every other sector, you know, pandemic has also uh, hit uh, iBanking space. Come 2020, uh, every industry in uh, India or globally was trying to overcome the COVID crisis and IB investment banking wasn't different. So, you know, investment banking has its own unique complexities as stakeholders are spread across different industry verticals and multiple geographies. Investment banks face significant challenges driven by COVID-19 impacts in evolving financial regulations, uh, increased client sophistication, a shift to remote uh, uh, working arrangements, you know, rapid technological advances. 
you know like every other firm like every other company you know measures implemented to uh, increase the it infrastructure to support remote working from home and you know provided newer ways for us uh, you know people working in investment banking to collaborate within teams uh, initially uh, to give you a perspective it was quite different you know connecting online with clients and with teams you know but however as time passed we all got used to it you know communication channels uh, changed completely and the second part of the question you mentioned what the future is going to be like uh, you know i would like to address that by saying you know the future will likely require investment banks to redesign their service delivery and processes among various geographies and leverage their ecosystem partners optimize use of financial technology data analytics to generate differentiated insights and add value to the clients most of the ibs are evolving into a one stop uh, one one shop uh, one stop shop for all the financial needs of corporates customer centric strategies we will require ibs to leverage partner ecosystems adapt insights and give value add to their clients you know large firms uh, the current trend is a large firm that trying to cross sell different services uh, in order to provide all the necessary uh, services as a part of transaction under a one uh, one branch you know this really helps to you know actually manage the entire m&a process uh you know because in in an amna process you have different advisors working at a different stage of transaction so if all those uh, services are provided under one roof it becomes quite easy to actually uh, manage the entire transaction process yeah. just to summarize going forward technology data analytics is going to play a key role like just like in any other sector even in investment banks i think all of us can completely agree on how this change has been uh, made easier because of data analytics and i think uh, most of the companies have uh, only uh, acquired with it and moving forward we'll have to make more changes to it but uh, yeah moving on to next question sir uh, especially in the context of achieving equal effectiveness as that of offline mode how has the domain of investment banking dealt with the challenges of remote working sure so before i go on with this question you know let me start explaining the advantages of working from an office to understand you know what challenges ibs have faced because of this pandemic you know so one of the key aspects of investment banking is to manage client expectations you know you know facetiming with clients through physical meetings was one of the key uh, roles and one of the key kras of any person in investment banking you know managing client relationships and trying to add value as advisors was one of the key objectives of uh, all investment bankers you know we uh, we make pitches to different different companies to you know get mandates you know all these pitches used to generally happen through face to face meetings you know and this face to face meetings always help us to drive home the points gauge client reactions which would always help us to maneuver the uh, maneuver the conversation with the client in our advantage the third thing you know ne negotiations which is a key part of uh, you know an mna process like you know negotiations happen at a very advanced stage of a transaction negotiations is a key you know make or break uh, kind of a uh, thing in every 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 deal or every transaction that we do so in initially when we were back in before the pandemic negotiations is to happen in one conference room where you know all the the all the required parties is to assemble and you know the negotiations will actually go on for 4 5 hours and you know we as bankers we, we used to you know gauge the reactions of the counterparty and you know see what how how we could uh, take advantage of the situation so all these things is you know one of the key uh, was was very important when we were working in office and because of pandemic now you know everything is done online other one thing what i want to mention was you know generating mna ideas or ideation is uh, one of the other pillars of our uh, investment banking profession you know all this just used to happen when we used to collaborate as a team in one conference room 
but like in every other sector pandemic has changed completely the way ibs also function online modes uh, virtual modes do not achieve the same level of effectiveness as a part of uh, as when compared to physical and offline mode before what we had pandemic but nevertheless you know online mode and work from home indeed is a valuable learning curve for i'm sure for all of you and uh, uh, other sectors as well face to face meetings you know were replaced by having virtual meetings on zooms microsoft teams review of de deliverables you know what we used to make uh, with our superiors used to happen initially in one conference room where we'll actually sit and spend an hour on whatever documents that we've uh, created and you know we used to have discussions on that with our managers and superiors now all that has been replaced by flashing slides on all these online platforms and you know learning through different thought processes and perspectives of superior what used to happen initially in a conference room now happens through an online mode and you know there are a lot of challenges associated with doing the same thing online so uh, another thing i would like to add is you know all the key steps in an mna process was carried out uh, you know uh, like i mentioned negotiations and valuation everything started happening online what initially used to happen in a conference room now started happening online you know i never imagined that in one day i'll be sitting at home and you know negotiating uh, with clients on valuation through an online channel but that's how that's what uh, the current uh, life is all about you know and ibs investment banks have learned to actually embrace technology in trying to maximize what value we are able to add to our clients all the, uh, <clears throat> uh the pandemic definitely made us realize the importance of having you know modern day infrastructure which actually made it easy for uh us to actually connect to clients you know access to databases which is one of the key things in our job profile uh directly from home you know uh, almost 1.5 years into work from home what initially seemed to be an apprehension i had in inhibitions about how this model is going to work now i can safely say it's a new way of corporate life you know i think technology modern work has helped us to seamlessly connect with anyone and make business as usual since you know there was no other option actually uh, left with us so i would like to conclude by saying you know uh, we've we've learned in last one and a half years how to embrace technology how to leverage technology definitely sir i think all of us can agree to that that how we have seen uh, education sectors changing in fact all of the sectors have somehow tried to cope up with the stress of pandemic and uh, the zoom meetings are the new normals and <laughs> absolutely absolutely definitely so um uh, it's it's a different it's a different environment we all are actually a part of i know i never could imagine myself actually sitting at home for almost one and a half years and actually working like nothing has happened but nevertheless you know uh, it's it's a learning curve by itself definitely definitely so i think we've shifted it a lot i mean the technology has taken leaps and bounds to uh, cope up with how pandemic has made us go through all of it so uh, my next question is what is the driving force that keeps you going uh, what are the skills that you think a candidate should possess to develop uh, when he thinks of pursuing a investment banking as a career sure so let me just start by saying you know working in an investment banking profile is quite challenging and it's a very dynamic job profile so working in an investment banking division you will you you will be helping clients across sectors or whatever sector teams that you are part of so, solve some of your most critical financial and strategic challenges so what key reasons what you know uh, why i actually like working or what motivates to me what motivates me to work in the sector is that you know every transaction that you work on every project that you do is completely different from the previous one every transaction has its own unique set of complexities which makes it very interesting and is different from other profiles 
since we invest a lot of time in understanding different businesses, their models, value chains, you know, it helps us understanding the global business environments much better. Uh, uh, also, like I mentioned, you know, we interact and work with multiple different advisors as a part of a transaction. And, you know, since you work with multiple adv uh, advisors from multiple backgrounds, you get to learn a lot about different job domains, you know, which actually makes the uh, learning curve quite steep compared to other job profiles. Working with pe uh, people with different backgrounds actually helps you develop different perspectives, helps you to build your own network also. Uh, there is always something new to learn when you actually have an opportunity to work with people with different backgrounds on a same transaction. Uh, IB profiles uh, give you an opportunity to work with smart people, which definitely helps you grow professionally. So working with smart people has its own uh, advantages. You know, it pushes you all the time to give you more than 100%, which ultimately helps you grow professionally and develop your core competencies. Uh, Compared to other job profiles, you know, most jobs somewhat have a defined career path. So like if you take any other job profile, you know, once you start, you have a fixed career path and you just walk along that career path and keep growing in that. But however, in investment banking, you know, it's quite different. The skill sets that you learn and develop while working, you know, whether it's soft skills or technical skills can definitely be leveraged to get into different roles, you know, such as consulting, buy side, you can get into industry and do a corporate MA, or you can get into a startup, you know, it, it, gives, it gives you a lot of exit options, unlike other job profiles. Investment banking, uh, you know, profile helps you create adaptable skill set, gives you a lot of exit options, like I mentioned, and helps you developing a competitive advantage, which, you know, you can leverage whenever you want to. So, you know, these are the key reasons which actually motivates me to actually be a part of this industry and, you know, keep doing what I'm doing. Uh, so to answer your second part of your question, what skill sets are required, you know, I would like to break that into two aspects, technical skills and soft skills. So, you know, uh, let me start with what technical skills, you know, you are required to actually, you know, have a sustainable career in investment banking. One of the first key requirements is that you, you will be expected to be comfortable working with numbers and have an analytical uh, approach to things. You know, we deal with numbers day in, day out. We look at company balance sheets, profit and loss accounts, cash flows day in, day out to understand what is happening. That's one of the key uh, KRAs of our job profile, you know, trying to understand what financial statements are saying, you know, what is happening with the company, how, how things are moving, you know, as far as profit margins are concerned. So that's one of the key areas, one of the key things, you know, uh, a person is expected to know. Second, I would say that, you know, to start a career in investment banking, you need to have a very sound financial knowledge, a good good working financial uh, you know knowledge. You need to uh, understand different concepts, which are you know we use day in day out. You 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 know you are expected to know how valuation works, what are the different uh, methods of valuation, you know how to analyze the balance sheets, how to analyze PNL, how to you know understand all these. So this is uh, uh, understanding annual reports, financials is it's very important in our job profile. Thirdly, I would say, you know, it's very important to have very good Microsoft Office skills. You know, you are expected to be good at Excel. You're expected to be good in PowerPoint. You should be able to, you know, make a financial model in Excel right from scratch. You know, that is one of the key things, uh, you know, key uh, deliverables that we keep making day in, day out. Uh, the third would be uh, uh, ability to work in a fast pace team-based environment with minimal supervision. You know, in investment banking, there is always, there is a saying, you know, work has to be done as per yesterday. So, you know, you have very, very uh, uh, tough timelines. 
you need to understand uh, you know how you're supposed to work in a fast paced dynamic environment and you know it's not always possible for your supervisor to you know help you at every point in time so so at, it is expected that you will be able to work with minimal supervision you know superiors are there uh, you know managers are always there to help you but you know when uh, when you have critical timelines you know you're expected to take more responsibility and you know have uh, work with minimal supervision uh other thing i would say you know you are expected to have very good research skills uh, research is another backbone of our uh, profession you know we keep uh, trying to understand whatever sectors that you work in we uh, keep uh, reading about those sectors we keep researching trying to understand what is happening in the sector what where are, what are the imminent trends that are happening where is an opportunity what we can do you know how we can leverage the current scenario to, to increase uh, our uh mandates so that's one of the key technical skills you know i would say is is, is you would be required to have a sustainable career in investment banking coming to the soft skills actually you will be expected to work in a dynamic environment and you will be always expected to multitask uh time management skills are extremely important you know you need to understand where you need to devote more time and where you need to uh, devote less time you need to prioritize your work according according to that you should be prepared for uh, you know i'm sure you would have heard working for long long hours in investment banking and even working on uh, weekends so to give you a perspective back when i was an analyst in 2012 you know i used to almost work for 16 hours in a day so that's what the it was initially at that point of time because the teams were quite small at that point of time now however things have changed you know teams you have more number of people the teams are much bigger than what it used to be before uh you'll be uh, expected to have social and relationship building skills also as being a part of the deal team because you know you deal with uh, uh, extremely difficult situations you have to manage and collaborate with different advisors you have to manage client relationships in, in the entire mna process strong communication and interpersonal skills are also very extremely important to have a successful career in investment banking so that, just to summarize like what i said you know uh, investment banking career uh, is a great option if uh, if you have affinity for finance or if you really uh, like uh, understanding how businesses work uh, you know how transactions are actually happening and if you like doing a lot of research or if you like understanding going through numbers crunching numbers day in day out i think uh, you'll be able to have a good career in investment banking thank you so much sir i think that has actually been a very helpful point that you mentioned about time management and prioritizing work and as you mentioned 16 hour work schedule so i think all of us need to be prepared if we are going to choose investment banking as a career so yeah the road when you start the road is a bit tough but you know eventually it gets easier as you move along the corporate ladder definitely nevertheless it's an, it's an it's a very steep learning curve and you will enjoy the journey if any one of you are actually thinking of taking investment banking as a career it's it's definitely uh, quite an enjoyable journey and a quite a fruitful one definitely so thank you so much for that and uh, we'll move on to the next question now uh, so what according to you are the key mna trends in india right now and uh, what is the mna landscape changing and how is the mna landscape changing in india so you know before i start with this question you know i just wanted to uh, check if i'm able to answer all the questions the way you guys have actually anticipated uh, me and i'm i'm free to take any questions from the audience if you have any any questions or you want to ask anything to uh, understand how actually investment banking works so i'm more than happy to answer any questions what the audience would have i think definitely we can do that at the end of the podcast after we are done with the questions uh, the uh, the platform will be open to all 
and I think the students here are very excited and might have few questions of their own. So we'll take sure. up then. And thank you for that opportunity, sure. sir. So guys, be ready. Sure. You'll have that the platform for yourself. And don't say that you don't have the So you have this right now. Okay. So yes, sir. Please go ahead. And yeah, you've been definitely answering all of our questions. Very, uh, I think, too apt to say. And we are very much satisfied with it. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so just to answer the last question that you've asked, you know, I can talk for at least hours and hours if you ask me to talk on what are current MA trends. It's a topic by itself, you know, because India is such a diverse country with so many sectors and every sector has its own uh, trends and all of that. But obviously, you know, it's not possible for me to cover all the trends, what is happening currently. But, you know, I will actually try my best to cover the few key trends that you would have seen in the last couple of years that have happened in India. So to, to start with, you know, the key focus sectors that have been for the last uh, couple of years is retail, tech, telecom, healthcare and pharmaceuticals, specialty chemicals and e-commerce. So to begin with, you would have seen a lot of, uh, if you've been reading newspapers or anything, you would have seen a lot of transactions, a lot of deals being announced, a lot of investments happening in these sectors. So, you know, excluding the big, big ticket deals that have happened in telecom sector, Geo, if you would have read early March 2020 and uh, 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 Geo, uh, Google invested, Facebook invested in geo platforms, you know, apart if you if you remove that first half of 2020 witnesses slowdown while investors were putting their plans on hold and shifting focus towards cash conservation uh, within the private equity world community several funds adopted a more cautious approach during the initial months of the year, either to focus on the existing portfolios or with expectation to revise uh, to see valuations getting revised. Simultaneously, a number of organizations were looking to hive off non-current assets, non-core assets, sorry, uh, distress segments in an effort to enhance and retain profitability and creating a number of MA opportunities. So to start with, you know, you would have seen, uh, you know, ad tech sector has been in the news for the last one, one and a half years, primarily because of pandemic. You know, as lockdowns brought normal life and conventional education to a halt, virtual education uh, quickly became a de facto solution for millions of students. So. AdTech has been an area of focus for investors, uh, you know, last year and this year too, particularly with pandemic driving the needs of continuing education through online and virtual classes. So throughout two, uh, 2020 and 21, you know, AdTech had an extremely good year as, uh, as a lot of startups attracted, you know, almost uh, $2 billion of funding. Uh, uh, almost, uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry, uh, FDI was almost to uh, USD 2.2 billion in uh, AdTech sector. Baiju's, if you would have read, uh, went on an acquisition spree, you know, to ride on the wave. It has done almost eight acquisitions uh, by spending almost $2.4 billion in last one and a half years. Uh, it has started to expand this position by going through, uh, by acquiring different uh, ad tech platforms. So, you know, this is one of the key uh, key themes you would have seen ad tech sector actually picking up expansion happening in those sectors. A lot of startups coming in, uh, a lot of investments happening, a lot of uh, financial investors, you know, uh, helping startups raise, uh, investing in these startups uh, by providing them capital. So that's one of the key themes that you, M&A themes that have happened, uh, M&A and P themes that have happened in last one and a half years. Uh, second, I would like to highlight is that, you know, increased investment in healthcare. I'm sure everyone would have, everyone would have realized the healthcare setup in India was actually not up to the mark and pandemic has made us realize, you know, that we, uh, our country needs investment in healthcare. So healthcare pharmaceuticals have emerged as key focus areas in 2020. Uh, India India's position as a front front runner in drug manufacturing and, and is an essential aspect in the current climate. 
the government's determination to reduce dependence on foreign imports and has you know uh, reinforced investments in the healthcare sector so this year also the sector has witnessed multiple transactions uh, at an undeterred valuations uh, uh, you know driving the investor confidence uh, to give you an example you know farm easy uh, you would you would have seen it's, a, it's another well grown startup you know has acquired majority staking thyrocare technologies a diagnostic lab uh, to diverse, diversify and you know increase its presence uh astrazinka uh, uh, the one who manufa uh, manufactures a covid shield uh, you know has signed a memorandum of understanding with dokun technologies a bangla uh, bangalore based uh, healthcare startup to digitize at least 1000 clinics across india by implementing customized electronic medical record systems in clinics and offer doctors access to patients complete medical history online so these are the few investments that have happened in healthcare sector and how uh, you know uh, uh, healthcare sector has been one of the key focus areas uh, other thing i would like to highlight is you know investments in infrastructure space particularly logistics uh, you know initial part of the lockdown in uh, last april uh, may you would have seen you know since you know we couldn't go out to buy groceries everyone uh, started adopting the online channels for you know whether it's big basket or you know whether it's uh, grofers or whatever other uh, online channels you had you know the, this whole pandemic you know initial part all these channels started facing a lot of uh, issues of warehousing not having enough storage spaces you know it realized them to have you know proper supply chains to navigate and to meet the growing demand so the wide scale increase in e-commerce business popularity among consumers a trend that has you know would see a, a lot of investments happening in the logistics space and warehousing space in india to give you an example you know singapore's uh, there is one uh, uh, sovereign wealth fund gic and a hong kong hong kong based logistics and real estate firm known as esr kmen have entered into a strategic partnership to establish a platform of a platform or a joint venture and acquire industrial and logistic logistics assets in india to the tune of almost usd 750 million so they have announced this partnership where they want to actually invest almost usd 750 million dollars in in this space uh, other key trend is you know inbound investments happening in india through global investors or global strategics covid-19 crisis has accelerated a lot of trade conflicts worldwide opening up the window opportunity for india particularly for micro and small and micro and small and medium scale enterprises to give you a perspective in the you know inbound activity in 2020 recorded almost 11% increase in spite of pandemic over over 2019 there was increased foreign direct investment happening in india the fdi worth almost uh, 30 billion was made between april to september which was almost which was almost a 15% increase over the same period last year uh one of the key reasons for increase in inbound investments in india is mainly driven by you know like i mentioned at the initial part of the podcast india is viewed as a next uh, growth engine by global investors you know in terms of attractiveness uh, investors have ranked india at number 3 position global investors have announced big ticket investments in india as they want to put indian startup space on the global platform several factors including improvement in infrastructure are allowing investors to take more risk by betting on indian startups to give you a perspective you know tiger global is one of the renowned uh, 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 financial investor with a lot of investments in india has announced a multi million dollar fund dedicated for indian startups amazon is another which has launched a us us 250 million dollar uh, venture fund to help indian startups and entrepreneurs 
to boost technology innovation and you know uh, uh, provide digital solutions in various sectors in india global companies you know are looking uh, uh, looking for a china plus one strategy uh, uh, to you know navigate through this uh, crisis so what has essentially happened is you know uh, china is a big powerhouse if you understand china is one of the big country uh, is one of the key countries in the entire global business uh, setup you know uh, it is uh, it is either number 1 2 3 in all as a uh, importer in all the key sectors so a lot of companies realize you know pandemic made them realize you know they need to have a strategy which is away from china de-risk from china so everyone started viewing india as an uh, market which could actually uh, be a second uh, uh, can be an alternative solution to them apart from china global majors started looking for uh, indian domestic players or started to look uh, you know started to enter indian markets india was slowly emerging as a favorable destination for growth uh, the other key uh, 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 mna or a p uh, trend i would like to highlight is private equity buyout transactions so initially you know uh, a lot of buyout transactions used to not happen so when i say buyout transaction is you know private equity acquiring acquiring more than 51% stake in any company generally private equity investors used to always have a minority stake say between 25 to 30% or say 40% but you know uh, buyout transactions were quite less when it when it initially used to happen uh, expectations exceeded on the pe front as investments almost worth usd 30 billion dollars were recorded in 2020 amounting to nearly same level of activity in 2019 reliance group was one of the largest contributor to pe deals that have happened uh, and helped retaining the momentum as far as private equity investments in india is concerned uh, pe bio, bio transaction like i mentioned has started to increase you know uh, in maturing indian market conditions and increasingly favorable regulatory landscape you know has provided a lot of tailwinds to pe firms to undertake bio transactions in india pe firms have become more confident of the indian markets and hence you would see a lot of bio transactions happening some of the key sectors where these uh, bio transactions are happening are real estate it services financial services technology telecom covid like is like a major catalyst for these bio transactions has made and uh, companies and promoters reevaluate what they actually want to do as far as the business strategy goes to give you a perspective you know as per some stats as per stats initially only 5 to 6% of private equity transactions were buyout transactions today almost 50% of private equity transactions that are happening are buyout transactions so you would see this is increasing over time it's a natural progression that generally happens in a market the lockdown in india has you know severely impacted a lot of sectors several discretionary consumer businesses like the retail sector have struggled to stay you know above water creating a number of consolidation and expansion opportunities a number of mergers were recorded in the banking sector as well which is already witnessing a wave of consolidation uh, to give you a perspective you know what i think is next few years you are going to be challenging for indian economy however the corporate india has previously demonstrated the agility and the adaptability in face of any crisis government reforms uh, and uh, demographic advantage further affirm india's potential as a key investment destination i believe that you know consolidation will be one of the major drivers for deal activity in uh, in the coming years and will be integral part of any uh, in a part of mna so this is what i would like to you know highlight as far as mna trends goes so needless to say uh, your uh, insights were quite fact based and i think all of us have gotten quite gist of what exactly the trends are and uh, all of us might be a little more interested to go and search about it 
and uh, ashitish has some questions i can see that in the chat box sure uh, sir if you take that uh, at the end of the podcast sure uh, would you like to take it right now so can you just read out the question i'm not able to access the chat uh, sure answer. sure uh, so ashitish has first question uh, how does domain knowledge help to be a successful investment banker and he has a second question that many job providers or employer express the given job profile as an investment banking profile what should be the key contents of job profile to call it a specially uh, to call it specially an investment banking profile so what are the specifics of it uh, can you just repeat the second part of the question i lost you in between sorry sure sir so he says that uh, many job providers employers express the given job profile as an investment banking profile but what should be the key content of a job profile to call it a ib profile got it so uh, to answer your second question uh, first so you know you need to understand the mna process uh, you know mna process is a quite a big process and generally you know every equity transaction that we do generally takes at least 3 to 6 months minimum and can also go from uh, from 1 year to 2 years so every investment banking profile first you know uh, requires you to you know you will be a part of the you are an ex- you will be a financial advisor to your client so when i say a financial uh, advisor to your client you whether it's a sell side or a, it depends whether it's a sell side transaction or a buy side transaction but when you are advising a client the uh, the key uh, uh, attributes uh, or the key uh, uh, things that we do as financial advisors is one we you know help the company uh, we understand the business the of our client we try to understand how the business model is we try to understand what the usp of the business is so if it's a sell side transaction if a client is looking to sell its business or raise some capital to a private equity firm we try to you know document all that all that in a in a in a investor collateral which we generally go out and then try searching investors based on whatever the client requirements are so once we have investors on board you know the other part is to you know adv- uh, you know help answer their questions so whenever any investor comes or you know is interested in investing they generally ask a lot of questions about how the business is what the business is to in, in order to understand what are the risk uh involved in every 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 business so all these questions are generally asked to an investment banker so as an investment banker you're expected to have a thorough understanding of your client's business because end of the day you will be the one who will be answering the questions to all these uh investors once uh, the investors are happy you know they have a fair bit of an understanding of the business they generally come up with a, a non binding offer is what we call as a letter of, or letter of intent so they would generally come back to us and say okay you know i'm interested uh, in you know being a part of this whole transaction uh, process and they give us a non binding offer where they actually give a what uh, what what the what's the valuation according to them and what's the money they are ready to pay for acquiring the company so once that happens uh, you know after that there is a next phase what we uh, call as due diligence before the due diligence phase starts you know the uh, there is a lot of negotiation that happens with the investor as far as the valuation goes you know you will appreciate that if you are selling your client will obviously want the best possible value that is possible and whoever is buying will always want the uh, the uh, the lowest value possible so always we need to we try to bridge that gap between the seller and buyer a lot of negotiations happen uh, as a part of the uh, uh, nbo once that valuation part uh, is settled and once the offer has been accepted by our client if you are on a sell side then the the next phase of the transaction is called the due due diligence phase of the transaction where whatever claims uh, what we have made as uh, uh, whatever the claims the company has made as a part of the qna with the investor or whatever collaterals have been shared with the investor all those facts are verified 
So there are different types of due diligence that happen. Financial due diligence happens, legal due diligence happens, com commercial due diligence happens. So there are various aspects of the business which an investor would actually try to verify and see, you know, uh, what, what uh, and verify the facts that we've uh, stated till now. Once the due diligence exercise is over, the next next part of the transaction is where the uh, client actually comes and gives us a revised valuation, uh, depending upon whatever findings have come out in the due diligence. So whenever a due diligence happens, or there are a lot of findings that have come out, you know, that can be, uh, you know, going against us, against our client. And whenever that happens, there is a value adjustment that is done by the uh, counterparty, the buyer. So whatever, to give you an example, if the, at the non-binding stage, if an offer of 100 rupees was given, that can be revised to 80. Now, when that happens, our uh, uh, our role as an investment banker comes in. We try to actually understand what, what are the findings in the due diligence phase and how and what impact does it have on valuation. We try to negotiate with the buyer and try to arrive at a middle ground because obviously our client won't accept whatever the buyer is going to say. So we try to arrive at a middle ground, we negotiate and try to arrive at a middle ground so that you know we can move to the next stage. The last stage of a transaction is the legal agreements where all the agreements are signed and the money gets uh, wired from the uh, money gets wired from the buyer to the seller and the transaction closes. So this is the entire m &A process and this is what an investment banker is expected to do. You are uh, right from the starting phase where you will be expected to, you know, make uh, investor collaterals. And when I uh, say investor collaterals, basically a document where we try to highlight our client's business, which is like a detailed note, which covers every aspect of the business. We prepare financial models, giving projections what the business will be in the next five years. So once you understand this m &A process, you will be able to understand that what uh, what, are, what are the key requirements of you as an investment banker? So we have a role right right from uh, preparing the investor collaterals till the legal agreements, you know. We, we, uh, we try to manage the entire process. We try to manage different advisors that are appointed as a part of the transaction. We, we help them get whatever information they want. We, uh, we answer their questions. All the negotiations that are expected to be done, it's all done by an investment banker. So to answer your question, this, this this is what an investment banker generally does as a part of a transaction when it's a sell-side transaction. Sorry, I missed the first part of the question. Could you repeat the first part of the question? Yes, sir. Sure. So uh, he mentioned about how does the domain knowledge help to be help one to become a successful investment banker? So, like I mentioned at the initial part of my podcast, you know, uh, uh, every investment bank now has a sector-specific team. So, you work, you do transactions within that uh, sector only. So, to give an example of myself, I am part of chemicals and agriculture team in EY. So, we only look at chemicals and agriculture sector and whatever subsectors are there within this space. So, it is very important to have the domain knowledge. It's very important. You need to understand how the sector works. It's very important. You need to understand what are the key trends that are happening in the sector and how we can leverage that and see, try to get business for our uh, our firm. It's very important to understand the nitty gritties of every sector because once, once you are a part of the transaction as a banker, as an advisor, you are expected to understand all these intricacies because investors don't have that specific knowledge. You know, you will be the one who will be educating those investors. You will be the one who will be answering their questions. So you, we need to understand, we need to you know, be able to give the right answers to the investors, which can actually help them understand the space and our client's business and appreciate how actually it exactly works. So. To answer the question, yes, domain knowledge is extremely important. You need to understand the sector extremely well to actually have a good career in investment banking. 
I think that very well answers the question that was framed by Shitesh. Thank you for that. I think Pushkar has a question. Uh, how about we take that at the end of the podcast, sir? Sure. Great. So uh, we do have uh, two more questions for you, sir. And uh, thank you so much for patiently answering to all of those. My next sure. question is uh, the role of banks and government in helping companies improve the current position so that corporate sector in India is able to reach pre-COVID levels sooner than later. What are your stance on it, sir? Sure. So, just to start with, you know, uh, let me explain you that you know every uh, every government, whether India, whether it's India or any other country and banks, they play a key part in uh, you know helping the uh, all the sectors in the country grow. They play an enabling role, uh, helping companies to overcome any crisis. In our current situation, is the pandemic. Uh, you know, in this uh, pandemic, you would have read, you know, a lot of small businesses, medium scale businesses have been uh, hit a lot compared to the bigger businesses. And, you know, as much as the big businesses are important, this small and medium scale enterprises also are equally important in India. And it's equally important for the growth of our economy. Uh, you know, as a result, government, uh, because of this COVID-19 pandemic, government realized and the banks also realized that they need to do something uh, to, you know, uh, help these small businesses tied over this crisis. You know, government has taken a lot of initiatives, a lot of regulatory changes have been made to, you know, help businesses actually tide over this crisis. I would like to highlight a few of them. Uh, so to, you know, enable the small sector businesses to stand up on its feet again, uh, you know, as pandemic still is not over in our country, government has announced several schemes, several uh, schemes where, you know, uh, small scale enterprises were given loan and with a moratorium where they could actually start repaying at a later date. A lot of government schemes have uh, uh, announced, uh, which actually uh, is helping the small-scale sector enterprises. You know, uh, government has announced uh, uh, something known as production-linked uh, scheme. I don't know if you guys have had a chance to understand that. It's it's a scheme that has been announced by the government, which they've uh, actually identified few sectors. Uh, uh, I think 10 of the sectors have been included and which would actually create a lot of job opportunities. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of incentives have been uh, announced by the government as a part of this policy. A lot of relief measures have been announced for small and medium scale enterprises and, uh, you know, NBCs, a uh, lot of non-banking financial companies have enabled the sectors to recover from the negative effect of pandemic. You know, the two rate cuts that have done by the RBI in the last one and a half years, you know, has helped, uh, you know, to keep the interest rates lower, which actually helps for companies to actually take loans and uh, come back on uh, feet uh, sooner than later. Uh, you know, in May 2021, Finance Min Ministry notified, uh, you know, final rules for foreign investment limit. They've increased actually the limit to 74% in insurance sector. So this is expected to benefit the insurance uh, uh, sector uh, primarily. Lot the FDI, which actually plays a crucial role, you know, a lot of limits of FDI have been increased in uh, different sectors. So these are the some measures that the government has taken, uh, you know, to help uh, corporate sector tied over the crisis. You know, there are a lot of uh, steps taken by a uh, lot of banks and fintech companies also. Uh, to give you an example, you know, Lending Cart uh, is one of the startups which is, you know, uh, created a co-lending SaaS platform. Uh, called the lending card together, you know, which will enable banks and NBFCs to have a uh, client on board within two weeks and disburse unsecured loans to small and medium scale enterprises in India. So lending card has primarily collaborated with banks and NBFCs in uh, uh, India with a, through a risk sharing partnership to assist them in extending their reach uh, in to remote locations in India. Uh, American Express has actually launched a 
Sports uh, Shop Small Campaign in India, where they've announced that they will invest $200 million to help small businesses uh, uh, to overcome the crisis. The campaign will cover retail shops, healthcare services, restaurants, and hotels. So these are the some measures that have been announced, which you know the government and the banks are trying to help uh, businesses uh, fight the uncertainty that is there because of this pandemic. So uh, I think that very well answers to our question about how this uh, has been, how government has been helping uh, the uh, IB sector as well. So uh, we'll now move on to the very last question that we have for you, sir. And uh, uh, I hope this is going to be a very good uh, summary of what we've been talking about so far. So what is your take on m and as a growth enabler or a, a growth strategy for companies? For a successful m and what are the parameters that are evaluated by the company post the merger? So, you know, before I start answering this question, you know, I would like to highlight, you know, there are only two fundamental ways for any business to grow, whether it's organically or an in inorganically. So when I say inorganically, it's generally through the M&A route. You know, any business that looks to grow inorganically or decides to do an M&A always has to answer this one question, build versus buy. Whether you buy businesses that give you the same capabilities or you internally develop those capabilities by investing uh, money and you know uh, doing it by yourself. So that's one question that every business needs to answer when they when they decide to actually take the M&A route. You know, as it is, there's a famous saying in our field. You know, marriages are made in heaven and M&As are made in boardrooms. So this can be uh, you know very well seen how uh, you know one of the key things like I mentioned before, Byju's Byju's has actually grown only through inorganically by doing uh, multiple acquisitions. Now they have become a very big uh, company within the ad tech space. You know. Like I mentioned, they've all done almost uh, investment of $2.4 billion through various acquisitions and uh, by acquiring various uh, platforms. Another example which I would like to give is, you know, Disney. Uh, over a period of time, Disney, a global company, has done multi has grown only through MA. Over a period of time, it has acquired leading production companies like Pixar, Marvel Studios, Lucasfilm, 21st Century Fox. And each acquisition has brought something different to the table. Disney's strategy is a prime example of how an m and enables businesses to grow, how an m and enables businesses to actually uh, uh, expand within the space they are in. Another uh, you know, key example is Google. Uh, Google has become a technical behemoth only uh, by going through an m and route. If, if I'm correct, they've done almost more than 200 acquisitions till now, which has enabled them to become a, a technical giant that it currently is. Uh, so this is this is how you know these are the some examples how an M&A strategy has helped businesses uh, grow. Uh, in Google's case, you would have seen the two uh, the two main acquisitions, YouTube and Android, which have done extremely well for Google. And uh, of late, it has acquired Fitbit also. So you would see how these M&As provide different capabilities to the existing business that Google has. How these uh, how this M&A has helped Google to actually grow in a short span of time. So what M&A essentially does is it helps you grow in a short span of time. Obviously, there are risks involved in, in, in every M&A transaction. But if you are able to address those risks, then M&A can be a very good strategy to grow uh, in India. Despite the ongoing climate of economic uncertainty, you know, many businesses still maintain the view that M&A is an essential element of their growth strategy. M&A is seen as a quick route to building and extending capabilities geographical coverage, and achieving greater scale. M&A strategy is about knowing what makes your business successful today and how you can add to make it, how you can add value to make it even better in the future. 
most companies you know can't be expected to stay ahead of uh, the pack in every department or every every segment they are into so you know uh, who would have thought that world disney company would actually acquire companies with an animation capabilities we used to always think disney you know to be the greatest company as far as animation goes so you know it makes sense uh, to you know acquire key capabilities through acquisitions particularly at the time when technology is changing so quickly further when you know and, and uh, when uh, when a buyer uh, acquires a company it essentially gains access to pre-existing clients of the of the seller contracts human capital physical assets and even intellectual property so just to understand you know just to put into perspective there are different reasons why every business does an mna there are different aspects different motivations for every business to do an mna uh, i would just like to highlight a few of the key uh, you know rationales that we have seen are the key uh, uh, reasons why any company decides to do an mna the key one of the key is consolidation when you know any buyer company uh, wants to act actually increase its market share you know there's a saying the best way to beat competition is to buy competition so you know if if you want to actually consolidate as a company you want to ex uh, consolidate your presence or you want to increase your market share the best way to do is acquire your competitors uh, second is you know expanding your presence in the entire value chain uh, you know you try to do acquisitions which give you uh, capabilities to backward integrate or forward integrate so when when i say backward integrate is essentially trying to say that you know if you are a manufacturing company you buy a rather than you know uh, uh, having uh, your raw materials bought outside through a third party vendor you rather have capabilities to manufacture those raw materials so that you're not dependent on vendors for those raw materials so that's what i essentially mean by backward integrate and forward integrate is basically increasing your presence you know if you are a manufacturing company and you know if you want to uh, increase your retail presence you try to acquire a company which already is present in the retail space in the same value chain so increasing your presence in the value chain is one of the key uh, reasons why you know any company intends to do an mna transaction the third key theme that we've seen is you know exp uh, expanding your reach to newer geographies so we've seen a lot of clients who actually do mna transaction you know mna gives them an opportunity to enter into new geographies where they are actually not present you know it gives them uh, it gives them capabilities it gives them a head start to you know enter into regions where they absolutely have no presence so through an mna acquisition they are able to you know have presence in those regions other is you know increasing a manufacturing footprint you know you would appreciate in india it's not very easy to set up a manufacturing facilities there are a lot of regulatory approvals required you know you need to acquire a land and all of that so a lot of businesses actually see mna or acquiring manufacturing facilities of other companies as a viable route to increase the manufacturing footprint into india and you know one of the other things we would we have seen is you know businesses do mna to acquire different product portfolio to diversify the product portfolio which helps them to address a larger section of consumers so you know for any mna transaction to be successful you know it's very important that as a buyer you have an understanding of what synergies are going to be so when i say synergies you know 1 plus 1 has to be more than 2 1 plus 1 cannot be 2 if you are doing an acquisition 1 plus 1 has to be 3 4 5 to make sense that it only makes sense if there are synergies in the transaction every buyer uh, tries to evaluate you know what these synergies are and how it is going to have an impact on its business once the acquisition is done you know uh, it's not uh, not all mnas are successful you know uh, not all mnas have a positive impact on the finances there are a lot of mnas that have happened historically which actually have gone bad you know to give some of the examples are you know reliance combination uh, reliance communication acquiring asl tata acquiring chorus you know that one transaction has uh, you know created a lot of problems for tatas 
Flipkart and Snapdeal is one transaction that is actually not, uh, you know, uh, uh, given a lot of uh, rewards, uh, a lot of uh, synergies to Flipkart. IDFC and Shriram Finance. So these are the few transactions. If you read, you know, you'll realize that these transactions actually haven't been successful. While there are multiple reasons for an any M&A to actually uh, fail, you know, some of the key reasons what I understand are, you know, the risk and reward relationship, you know, you don't want to end up paying more for any business that you're buying versus what you're getting in return. So that is something that we as advisors help, uh, you know, our clients understand what are the risks involved. We, we as advisors help our client to understand, you know, what should, according to us, be the fair value of any business what they are looking to buy. You know, sometimes businesses use a lot of debt, use a lot of leverage to do acquisitions. And, you know, they don't have a clear plan what happened, what will happen to the debt that they take to acquire businesses after the integration, after the acquisition has happened. So, you know, one of the reasons for M&A to fail can is, is also being, you know, taking too much of debt on the balance sheet without having a proper plan to service it. Economic downturns in the country, you know, you might acquire businesses at the wrong time when, you know, actually economy is not doing well. That can also, you know, backfire on how the M&A actually turns out to be. Uh, permissions from regulatory authorities. So, you know, it's uh, uh, there's something known as competition commissioner in India. I'm sure you guys would uh, understand how it is. So if, if you end up having more than 51% market share in any country, it has to go through a competition commissioner clearance. So a lot of, tra lot of times it happens that, you know, uh, buyer uh, announces an acquisition, but it does not get the regulatory approval and then the transaction actually falls off. So that is also one of the key reasons why actually, you know, M&As don't end up uh, becoming uh, the right way of uh, growing. Uh, other key reason is due diligence going wrong. So like I mentioned initially as a part of that query, you know, due diligence is one of the key aspect of an, one of the key stage in an M&A process, which actually makes or breaks the entire deal. We've seen number of transactions, uh, you know, actually more than 70% of the transactions fall out during the due diligence phase. So due diligence, like I mentioned initially is nothing but, a, uh, you know, to put it in simple words is in advance and more detailed form of an audit. Uh, the buyer will try to go through the, uh, you know, the try to touch the ocean, try to understand the business from, right, right from the top to the bottom. So if the due diligence does not happen or, you know, a lot of information is not shared as a part of due diligence exercise and if the buyer still decides to go ahead, it can happen that after, in, uh, after acquisition, you know, uh, things actually are not as what it was uh, envisioned to be. So these are some of the reasons why, you know, M&A actually uh, uh, can actually backfire also which is why you know you need to uh, try to mitigate all these things and try to understand before you actually enter into an any m and transaction to summarize you know mnas more often than not end up being a growth enabler than a value destructor evaluation of pot uh, potential synergies are a key uh, is very important for any successful m and transaction to act as a growth enabler uh, there is there are no hard and fast rules you know given that a merger will result in a uh, you know uh, whether a, every m and will result in a, uh, a positive impact or not uh, uh, the second part of the question the post merger you know the parameters the key parameters that you need to evaluate are realization of uh, you know the synergies uh, whatever synergies that you've uh, envisioned you know are going to get released uh, or, or going to have a positive impact have to happen once the integration happens once the acquisition that you've made integrates into your platform. The synergies generally end up realizing uh, whether on the cost front or on the revenue front. Completing the integration within the, you know, within the time frame. you know, it's very important that after acquiring businesses, you integrate them into your platform, uh, you know, within the time frame. The more time it takes, the more uncertainty is there for, uh, you know, uh, all the stakeholders involved. 
so it's always makes sense or it's always prudent to have the uh, the business integrated to your platform uh, sooner than later managing uh, successfully managing different work cultures so when you acquire when you acquire companies the work culture of the target company the selling company would be different than the work culture of your company so we have seen this is one of the key re- one of the key uh, you know aspect which a buyer has to actually evaluate you know and uh, address it you know because a lot of times what happens is employees don't feel at home once the acquisition happens most of the key employees end up leaving it and once key employees leave the whole uh, you know uh, the synergy that a buyer would have uh, uh, envisioned and you know uh, human resource key employees are the, are one of the key um, one of the important aspects for every any M&A transaction to be successful, uh, managing successfully managing the project risk and uh, corporate governance once the acquisition is so these are the key uh, parameters that you generally try to evaluate. Uh, return on investment, you know, you would you you would want that whatever you are acquiring actually has a positive impact on the uh, your earnings. Uh, whatever money you are paying actually ends up uh, getting realized with a positive impact on the earnings due to the seller's profits. So these are the uh, key parameters that are generally evaluated uh, once the M&A uh, transaction is uh, uh, done. I think that very well summarizes our topic of investment banking. And uh, Sir's insight has been quite uh, factual based, based and uh, definitely his opinion and his industry experience over nine years has, has been uh, uh, an amazing turnout for all of us. And we do have two more questions from our uh, participants here. So sure, Pushkar I'll be more than happy to address them. So Pushkar asks us uh, that, sir, you talked about the need of upskilling and valuations. How does an investment banker go about uh, valuating a particular firm? And how should a student like uh, himself upskill ourselves in the same? So to understand that, you know, there are fundamental methods of valuing companies. There are, you know, the key, I would like to highlight the key methods that we generally use are uh, relative valuation, which is nothing but uh, trading multiples and transaction multiples. Uh, other is DCF, discounted cash flows. So these are the two key methods we generally use when we try to, you know, evaluate what needs to be the fair value of the business that we are trying to sell. And more often than not, you know, promoters of the company generally have a value in mind. Uh, you know, they have a better understanding of their own business. They have a better understanding of, you know, what uh, what should be the fair value of the business. We try to, you know, uh, understand from them what, what they think should be the value of the business. And based on these methods, we try to arrive at a fair value. So, like I said, you know, every seller, if you're, if you're a sell-side advisor, every seller would want a maximum value to be realized and every buyer would want the lowest possible value to be paid. So that's the that's a gap that we generally end up bridging through uh, multiples. We you know we try to see what are the trading comparables in the same listed space. How are they faring? You know there are these ratios that we see EV by EBITDA, EV by sales or PE ratios. I'm I'm sure you guys would have heard about it as a part of your curriculum. So these are the key ratios that we see of the same peers. We try to see what range these uh, the peers are trading at. We also look at historical transactions that have happened in the same space to get a sense, you know, what EV by EBITDA was there. So these two methods generally help us in arriving at a fair, uh, arriving at a fair value versus, you know, we try to uh, basis the peers, the transaction that have happened. We try to uh, uh, give a fair value to our client, basis his business model, where it is in the value chain, how it stacks up against the uh, comparable companies. This is how we generally, uh, you know, try to uh, arrive at a valuation and you will appreciate valuation is an art and not a science. So there is no exact, there is no right and wrong in any valuation. It's just about getting uh, and addressing what you, what you want. 
I think that sufficiently answers the question asked by Pushkar. Pushkar, uh, is that fine with you? Yes, thank you so much, sir. Thank you. No worries. Great. So more next than happy question. To address, that... More than happy to answer if I'm able to give you good insights. I think the next question is by Shitesh again, and he asked that uh, there is a widespread understanding that an IB job requires a candidate to be an outperformer in academia. Are there opportunities for students who possess dynamic skills but have moderate marks at graduation level? Uh, so you know, I'm a firm believer that uh, uh, education only helps you getting interviews. Education, it's your attitude and your hard work that gets you to. the level that you end up reaching so to give an example of my i'm just a qualified chartered accountant and i'm not even a first attempt ca i'm a second attempt ca so generally when i was trying to get into the ib space i also found it very difficult to break into it but luckily i was able to uh, have my first job with rabo bank to you know education is as important to just get give you an interview after that you know ib interviews are very very thorough they are very very uh, uh, difficult you are expected to know a lot of things you are expected to you know understand finance how it works you are understand to know how the economy works you are you are understand to uh, you expected to know how the sector works depending on where you are interviewing and what sector role you are interviewing so it's very important to know all these things uh, you know education helps you but i think it's uh, more about uh, uh, how how you are able to fare in the interviews how you are able to answer those questions because to be honest ib interviews are really very Difficult interviews to crack. You I need to be actually I... thoroughly prepared. I mean, they ask anything under the sun, so you know it's not something you know that you can actually uh, prepare for. But it's something that you know if you keep reading about it, if you keep read uh, uh, reading about what's happening in the country, how it uh, it is, why this is happening, why that is happening, that will actually help you understand what is happening around you. It will help you understand uh, what are, what what trends are happening. You know, the more you read, the more you'll understand. uh how the space works the more you, you the best way to understand how ib works is to get in touch with anyone working in investment banking that's what i had done when i was trying to get into investment banking i tried to get a sense how the industry works for people who have worked in that sector or who have spent considerable amount of time so once you have an understanding once you know what is required you know you'll be able to prepare for the interviews much better i think that uh, shitish seems to be satisfied his head is going left and right so thank you so much sir and hopefully we don't have any more questions uh, great so uh, we would love to connect you later on i think all of the students right here would want to connect with you i am more than happy to take and if anyone wants actually to has any more questions on investment banking or if anyone's looking to get into investment banking i am more than happy to share my experience with them and you know probably uh, help in whatever manner i can So uh, with that I think we have come to the end of the podcast and uh, on behalf of the entire club sir thank you so much for joining us and thank you for giving us your sunday and being so thorough with all of the questions you patiently answered to each of the questions and just to quote uh, a line that you said that I really I'm going to take it with me that uh, uh, relationships are made in heaven but uh, the board meetings are where you decide the mergers so I think that really took a lot yeah. on all of us and uh, All of us seem to be very excited about the IB field, and you have really, really mentioned about how we can take it up as a career, and what all skills we require, and how your journey uh, could be one of the ways we look at it. So, uh, thank you so much for joining us, sir, and we're really grateful to you.